we are back in Genesis for two weeks. Um, we're going to be in Genesis 8 and 9 today, and we're going to be in Genesis 10 and 11, um, now, or the end of 9 through up through 11 next week. So it's going to be a big, big chunk these next two weeks, but I trust um, you guys have been, um, been helped um, and encouraged by this series, and so hopefully this week and next week will be no exception to that. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to start reading for us at the, be- uh, the middle of chapter 8, um, verse 15. Um, and I'm going to read down through the middle of chapter 9. All right, so Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 15. I'm reading from the CSB. Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird in the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you, as I gave the green plants. I've given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with the lifeblood in it, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life." Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you. That never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. All right. This is God's word to us this morning. Um, If you remember back three weeks ago, Josh was here, and he was the captain of, of Noah's Ark, he, he brought us through the floodwaters, um, and he reminded us so well that God is worthy of our trust, that God always does what he says that he's going to do. The flood came, 
just as God said it would, destroyed all of humanity, um, just as God said um, it would. Um, humanity had become evil and corrupt, and now they were gone, except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So eight people left on the entire earth, and a very small portion uh, of the animals are left as well. So the question that we want to ask now on the other side of this cataclysmic event is, what is life going to be like? What's it going to be like now on the other side? We, we talk like this even now um, with something less uh, shocking, less unprecedented uh, than the flood we, with the pandemic. We talk about, you know, are we ever going to go back to the way it was in 2019? And most people say, well, in some ways, yes, we haven't changed. In other ways, no, we won't go back to the way it was in 2019. But I think it's safe to say that there's nothing in my lifetime and, and probably your lifetime, as I'm older than most of you, but, you know, so not COVID, not 9-11, not Port Arthur, not even the proliferation of the internet has changed the world the way that the flood changed the world. Um, and Genesis chapters 8 and 9 lay the foundations of what life is going to be like after the last puddle evaporates. And the picture is, is realistic. It's not an idealistic picture. It's realistic. Um, there's still no going back to the world of the Garden of Eden, the world before sin came in. Sin and death are still going to be part of the picture. And in this section, uh, we're, going to, we're going to stop midway through chapter 9. There's one key phrase that, that I want to point out in the very beginning that I think will help us understand what's happening here. It's in verse 21 of chapter 8. It's another promise of God to Noah as the representative of all, human, of, of all humans. And God says this to him. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, which kind of sounds like he's rewinding Genesis 3, where he cursed the ground after Adam sinned. It's, it kind of sounds like it's going back to the way it was. But then he says this. He says, I'm not going to curse the ground again, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. See, sin is still in the picture. God has pushed the reset button on creation. He's, you know, flipped it on and flipped it back on again. But the human heart is still inclined toward evil. It hasn't dealt with the, the root problem. In the end, God's power and his purposes are going to win out even though the human heart is inclined to evil, even though we are going to try our best as human beings to mess things up, the good news is that someday, somehow, not that we will become the best versions of ourselves. That's not the good news. The good news is that in spite of ourselves, God is going to be true to himself. He's going to be true to his word. And while we were sinners, while we were inclined to evil, while we were intent on messing things up, God sends his sinless, perfect son into the world that we've messed up to die for us and make everything right again. This section, I, I want you to see what he calls the covenant. Now, covenant is kind of a Bible word. It's, it's just a word that means agreement. It's an agreement between two parties. God makes this agreement with Noah. 
Um, it's, a, it's a unilateral covenant. It's not, you don't see Noah walking out of the ark and going to find God and saying, okay, God, I've got some words with you. No, God comes to find him. He sets the terms of the covenant. It's one way. Um, Noah here is not pictured as the perfect mediator of this covenant. Humans will still need another mediator, another representative who is perfect, and he'll come later. The foundations, though, of that perfect mediator, who is Jesus, are being laid in this covenant. And the reason is because God doesn't change. And so you'll see this thread of the way God relates to us as people that is being woven through the way he relates to Noah and Noah's generation. And you can, you'll, you will be able to trace that through the entire Bible, all the way up to the new covenant, which we are under as Christ's people. What I want you to see, particularly in this section that I've read today, is, is really the character of God, because God doesn't change. And so that's why this story is relevant for us. That's why we can get anything out of it at all, is because God doesn't change. God is the same today and here in this place as he was then. And, and I want to focus on four aspects that we see um, just jumping out. Of in this text. Number one, God is creator, again, who fills and refills the earth with life. God is sustainer who keeps us so that we can know him and enjoy him. Number three, God is protector who establishes systems for human life to flourish. And then fourthly, God is peacemaker whose loudest word to us is mercy. So let's start with the first one. God is creator who fills and, and refills the earth with life, with his people, particularly, specifically. Last time in Genesis, again, Josh painted this picture of life on the ark. It was not a pleasure cruise. It was a, a floating barn with all the sights and, and sounds and smells. And there were eight people on that boat who were just hanging out to get off and breathe some fresh air. Um, I don't know if you can remember the last time you were on a long flight. It seems like a lifetime ago that we were on long flights. Um, but if you have the memory of being on the flight, you know that when those long flights land, that on that plane there are two kinds of people. There are the firstborn children on the plane, and then there's everyone else. The firstborn children are the people who listen for the announcement, and they say, please, Remain in your seat until the captain has switched off the fastened seatbelt light. And then there's everyone else that knows that they're gonna, they've got to race to the baggage reclaim, and they need to be the first one there so they can wait there. Um, and so it, literally as soon as those wheels touch the runway, people you know, up out of their seats. I remember being on a flight one time, a small plane, um, when I was younger, flying to uh, an island in the Caribbean. So it was a very small propeller plane and same thing like the plane had just landed and people started to stand up and there was one flight attendant on the and and this was back in the day where there was just a curtain between the cockpit and the rest of the plane I'm old and so and she like that rips that curtain back comes running back and says sit down if you stand up the plane the weight is going to be imbalanced the plane's going to tip over it's literally what she said and everybody I'm like that is an effective way <laughs> Better, who needs the seatbelt light? You just need that. Um, but there's two kinds of people on a long flight. There's people that listen to the instructions 
and wait. And then there's people who just are so anxious to get off that they're up out of their, plane, out of their seats. Um, Noah was that first kind of person. Noah and his family, and you see this, he's waiting. He's been on the boat for over a year. I used to think when I was a kid and I heard the story, he was on for 40 days and 40 nights. That's when it, how long it rained. But if you do the math, how long, because it took a long time for the water to actually rise to its full height after it stopped raining and then to recede. So it was over a year that they were on this boat, and yet they don't take one step out. Don't take one step out until God speaks and tells them to come out. Um, John Calvin noticed this as well, and he, he's, here's what he says about Noah. He says, How great must have been the fortitude of the man who, after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the deluge has ceased and new life has shone forth, does not move one foot out of his sepulcher, out of his tomb, um, without the command of God. See, Noah may not have known this at the time, but his patience... His obedience to wait until God says, come out, it's a picture of an even greater act of obedience that would come later. You see, Jesus, like Noah, did everything that God commanded him to do. He didn't move until the Father told him to move. Even to the point of death, he, he died and was buried in a tomb because God ordained that would be the way that he would crush the head of the serpent and then three days later, and not a minute earlier, when God said the word, he came out of that tomb as the firstborn of the new creation. Just like through Noah, God would repopulate the earth that had been devastated by sin. Through Jesus, once again, God is going to refill the earth with his people. People who are not just isolated individuals, but a, a family who have been set free from sin and united to Christ. God is your creator. He is your recreator. And so this picture of Noah and his family coming out of that tomb of the ark is a picture of what, it, what, what happened when you came out of the tomb of sin and entered into your new creation life. Anyone in Christ, in his church, is a new creation. The old has gone. And so now, you and me, like Noah, we have a similar mission. And what is that mission? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, not necessarily with biological children, although for some of us that is the case, but our mission is to walk out of that tomb of sin and fill the earth with his people, with disciples of Jesus. God is creator who fills and then refills the earth with his people. Uh, now, before Noah gets on with God's work of refilling the earth, he stops to do something. So let's um, jump down to verse 20. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. Um, where he had gotten the idea to do this, I don't know. It seems like maybe this was something that certain people were doing or he had done before the flood. And then he takes, it says, some of every kind of clean animal and clean bird and offers these burnt offerings uh, to the Lord. And you say, well, where, did these, where does he get these animals? Uh, you know, there's not very many left, so we don't want them to go extinct. But if you go back and look before the ark, the clean animals, they actually had seven pairs, not just one. So he had some extra um, to be able to offer this act of, of worship, this sacrifice. 
Um, and see, not only is this an act of worship, it's an act of faith. Noah believes that there's more than enough of these animals to repopulate um, the earth. And it's this faith that Noah has, this devotion that he has that rises to God as it says, a pleasing aroma, a pleasing aroma. Um, I think a couple weeks ago I said that in other sort of ancient cultures, there are other flood stories around the place. This is not the only one. Um, and in some of those flood stories, um, a Bible scholar, Bruce Waltke, tells, says that in those stories, the gods, and there's many gods, not just one, when there's also this sacrifice, like the people that survive the flood offer a sacrifice to the gods. And it says when they do, the gods gather around the sacrifice like flies. They're hungry. That's not the picture here of the one true God. It's not a picture of, you know, God is, you know, out there roaming through the, the car park at Bunnings and he's just suddenly hungry for a sausage when he, you know, when he smells that pleasing aroma. He's pleased with Noah's faith represented in the offering. He's pleased with Noah's faith. He delights in ordinary people like Noah and like you and me who know how to stop what you're doing to look up to God and say, God, you are worthy of this. You're worthy of this moment. More important than anything that I can do for you is just to stop and worship you. Before I do anything for you, I just want to be with you. And whenever you do that, God is delighted. He's pleased with that sacrifice of worship passage goes on to describe God's reply to Noah's worship. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. And again, this does not mean that God will not punish sin. It just means that he won't totally destroy the earth and its inhabitants with a flood. God's anger is turned away. His wrath is extinguished by the faith-filled worship of one man. Now, that doesn't solve the root problem, as I said before. Human hearts are still corrupt and inclined to evil. But Noah's sacrifice here does pave the way uh, for another sacrifice that will come later. And that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, not only appeases God's anger at sin, but this sac that sacrifice becomes the basis on which totally new humans can become totally righteous, totally blameless, and have new hearts and dwell in God's presence be with him forever. If you look at verse 22, it says, as long as earth endures, every act of worship, every sacrifice is going to point to this ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. Now we're on the other side chronologically, which is why we celebrate communion together every week, because we point backwards to this, the ultimate sacrifice that saved us. Every time Every new season, every time we, every week we gather and worship and commemorate his sacrifice. Every, every year that passes, every new growing season, uh, every new um, morning that the sun comes up is a reminder that, again, God is faithful, that he has sustained us for yet another day, another year, another week. He is the sustainer who keeps you and me and our neighbors so that we might, like Noah, Stop what we're doing, turn to him, and enjoy him. Worship him for who he is. That's why he keeps us alive 
And it's why we will be alive with him forever if we are in Christ. He's the sustainer who keeps us to know him and to enjoy him. God is the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. But he doesn't just sustain life in such a way that people that we're just left hanging on by a thread. He's going to establish here systems and conditions for human life to actually flourish. Even though our hearts are still inclined toward evil, he's going to establish the system, these systems as his, an example of his grace and mercy and love to us. He blesses Noah in these verses, beginning of chapter 9. Same blessing he gives to Noah. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says it twice in verse 1 and again in verse 7. Now, instead of verse 2... Instead of telling them like he did to Adam to, be, to subdue the earth and rule over it, God says that the animals are going to have this innate fear of humans. They're going to, and it's for good reason, because in verse 3, humans are given a license for the very first time in history to kill animals for food. Up to this point, only a handful of animals had been killed for the purpose of worship, for sacrifice. Now, it says, animals are going to be killed for dinner. But it's not a free-for-all slaughter fest. If you're hearing this and you're disinclined to eat meat or animal products, take heart. There's still plenty of plants to eat for food. There's no command that you must eat meat. This is simply permission. In verse 4, there's this instruction about eating animals. He says, don't eat animals with the blood in them. So, you know, if you've ever been inclined to, like, eat the head off of a live animal, don't do that. Why? Because God has made us stewards of creation, not destroyers of it. When we receive animals as food, we receive them thankfully and humbly as gifts. And this is not a license for savage behavior. Um, the goal here is always thankful worship of God. It's never unlimited cons consumption. That's, that's not the goal. Life is sacred, even animal life. And so there should be a certain reverence, a certain respect, a certain stewardship in the way that we take life and a, and a justifiable reason for, for doing it. If you look at the rest of verse 4, it says, Every animal, every human that takes the life of another human will have to give an account for that life because human life is particularly sacred. Is more sacred than animal life. All life, including animal life, is a reflection of the life giver, but human life is particularly sacred because it's humans that are created in God's image. And it says that if you take the life of another human, whether you're an animal that kills a human or you're a human that kills another human, you're subject to the death penalty. That's how serious murder is in God's eyes. The wages of all sin is death, but killing another human being is especially heinous. Why? In verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. Killing a human is a capital offense because you're not just killing a clump of cells. You're killing a man or a woman made in the image of God. God doesn't say that he will directly intervene and strike down the killer with a lightning bolt. He says, by humans his blood will be shed. So in other words, he is going to set apart some humans to judge those whether they are innocent or guilty of murder and then to execute justice for those who are guilty. God's covenant with Noah isn't just the start of the death penalty, it's the start of the, and the foundation of the entire system of human justice and human government. 
is found it right here. And why is this good news? Why is this good news? Well, think back to a minute. If you remember back to Cain in chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel in a jealous rage. And immediately what happens? He's afraid for his life. He says, people are going to come and they're going to they're take it out on me. They're going to kill me in revenge. They're going to strike me down. But God is merciful to Cain. He puts a, a mark on him and he says, if anyone kills Cain, I'm going to take vengeance on that person seven times over. A few generations later, Cain has a great, great, great grandson called Lamech. And, and he says that as this, you know, some guy bumped into me. He hurt me, and I killed him. And he's bragging about this vengeance, this sort of vigilante justice. It's an indication that sin had spiraled so out of control. Society was so out of control. It's really why God brought the flood, because there was so much violence in the world, and there was nothing that would restrain that violence. It was unlimited. It was brutal. And so God here, he puts a system in place to restrain that tendency of human community to spiral into uncontrolled violence. Even though the human heart is still inclined to hate and even to murder, God steps in and he sets up the justice system. He sets up government and systems to hold people accountable for murder. And we should thank him every single day for the mercy of good government. As Paul says in Romans 13.1, it says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. God gave us government literally to keep us from killing ourselves into extinction. Now, you might have questions because there's plenty of examples in the world and in history of bad government. Systems, even necessary ones like courts and police and armies, can become corrupt and unjust because they're made up of human beings whose hearts are inclined to evil. People can twist the system to meet their own ends. But in any system we have now is better than the alternative of no system. The pre-flood world of every man and woman and child for themselves. One of the ways we measure that is government good is the way it treats human life. Especially the life of the most vulnerable of God's image bearers is a, is a measuring stick that we have to say whether or not government's good. So you can look at a whole range of modern issues, you, some that we talk about a lot. You can, um, it's why Christians are often have a lot to say about abortion, because unborn children are the, some of the most vulnerable members of the human community. And so God, government is good. Good government is government that protects the vulnerable, protects the life of God's unborn image bearers. Sometimes, just though, because government gets this wrong, it does not mean that we then have a license to go and overthrow the government and take the law into our own hands. Why? Because bad government, even bad government, is better than no government at all. If you look at the world before the flood, human beings have hearts that are always inclined to evil and left to ourselves. All of us would be out in the streets shouting, my body, my choice. Because that's just how our heart, that's, just, that's the, the cry of our hearts. Last month, in the, U, in the U.S., in the state of New Jersey, um, this really happened. A grown adult man walked into a supermarket in the leafy suburbs and, and shot a woman um, point blank, and she died. And what was his motive? 
because she was a store clerk and she had asked him to put on a mask. This is, you think, oh, that's outrageous, but this is the human heart left to itself. And, and, and all of us have this tendency, were it not that God gives us these guardrails, these systems, these things that restrain the evil that exists in our hearts so that we can, as Paul says, live peaceful and quiet lives as God's people who are seeking to make disciples of all nations. Because until the day that Jesus comes and sits on his throne again, God will protect us. He's preserving and protecting us, his people. He's establishing these systems of government that will help us to flourish until that day. God is creator, sustainer, and protector of his people. Now, finally, we're going to see him as peacemaker, the one who makes it possible for us to approach him at all. Starting in verse 8, we see him establishing this covenant with Noah, and there's a particular sign that he gives um, to show Noah and to show us that his covenant is true, that he's going to be true to his word. In these verses, Noah is the representative of all humanity. God says, I'll never destroy all earth and all life with a flood. Now, you might think that's, that's kind of a specific promise. He's not going to destroy life with a flood. It's like, you know, thinking about a kid at school who promises to never again beat you up on the second Tuesday of the month at recess. It seems kind of specific. But if you remember, Noah's just spent a whole year on a boat watching people he knew drown in a flood. He's probably going to have, although I don't know if they had this category back when he was alive, some kind of post-traumatic stress happening. And so it's, that's why God is specific, is saying, I'm not, you, this is not going to happen again. You can, every, the, you know, every time it rains, you don't have to fear that the world is going to drown. Instead, the world is going to be showered with God's mercy. Anyone that's lived more than a few days will know that sometimes mercy and kindness, goodness, are hard to come by in life. Um, We can become very cynical very easily. It's just kind of a byproduct of our age. And so we need regular reminders and signs of God's mercy to fight off the cynicism and remember that God is good and that he is kind. And so, for example, here now when it, it rains and, the, and then the rainbow comes out after the rain, it's a reminder that God is a God of mercy. And we need those reminders. Verse 13, God says that he has placed his bow in the clouds. Now, the word for bow here is not a specific word that means rainbow. It means bow, as in the weapon of war that you shoot arrows with. God says, I place my bow in the clouds. And it's a sign that moment that no, his arrows of judgment are no longer aiming at human hearts. It's a sign of peace. It's a sign of peace with God, the one we've offended. It is possible because he's made it possible. That's why the rainbow is going to reappear in the sky over and over again because we need to see and believe God's grace to us. Every covenant, every peace treaty that God makes with his people comes with a sign, and this one comes with a rainbow. And now every single creature with eyes to see and ears to hear storm clouds and the thunder can look up into the sky and remember that God's anger lasts only a moment and his favor a lifetime. Why? 
Is it because we don't deserve to be wiped out? Of course not. The more mercy we see, the more guilty we are for rejecting his mercy. But he makes a way to have peace, for us to have peace with God because he loves us. And why does he love us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Friends, the ground of God's love and mercy for you is not found in you. It's found in him. It's his character. He loves you because he loves you, because he is love. That's what the rainbow in the sky is for while you were still a sinner, while you were angry with him, while I was not believing in him, while I was chasing after whatever gods and whatever treasures that I could find on my own, trying to be my own person and achieve my deepest desires. He didn't send in the tanks to destroy me or you or the world. He sent in his most valuable treasure, his own son, to be destroyed, that your life could be purchased out of your rebellion, out of your complacency. God is the creator who fills and, and refills the earth with his people. He's the sustainer who keeps us so that we can be close to him forever. God's the protector who doesn't just keep us alive, but makes us flourish. And he's the peacemaker whose loudest word to us is mercy. Let me close with this. Um, I, I personally have only experienced a tiny sliver of what might be called trauma uh, in my own life, but I do know a lot of people quite well that have been through you know, multiple traumatic events in over a short period of time. And maybe that is the case for, for some of you listening. Um, one of the common phrases throughout Christian history used to describe um, traumatic periods in life is the phrase, a dark night of the soul. And there's a reason that we associate darkness with pain. When we're hurting or we're, when we're afraid, our, our survival instinct kicks in. And we tend to withdraw from relationships. We tend to isolate, um, which often only compounds the, 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 the pain, makes it worse. It's so universal that even, you know, even secular movies that have nothing to do with spirituality at all kind of weave this imagery into the plot. Um, my kids, one of their favorite movies when they were a bit younger was the movie The Croods. I don't know if you've seen an animated movie. And it opens, the whole plot of the story opens with this family, this prehistoric family that has been traumatized by the brutality and violence of the world that they lived in. And so they, they're hiding in a cave, in a literal cave, in darkness, and they're afraid of the light. But if you watch it, if you watch the story and the plot unfold, the animators of this story, as, the, as it continues, progresses towards its, well, I won't spoil it, but it's a kid's movie, so you know it's a happy ending. As it progresses toward, towards its happy ending, you'll notice more and more color being added to the animation. Um, and kind of like, maybe not as dramatic as like The Wizard of Oz, but by the end of the movie, it's just color everywhere. Because the, the way we move away from darkness and pain to light isn't simply by conquering our own fears into the, and venturing into the unknown, but it's when the writer of the story begins to weave color into the world that he made. And, and, and that is what the gospel does. That's what the rainbow was in the sky. And that's what the gospel story is for you. It's, it's when, when God, the storyteller, comes and, and weaves color 
in and amongst the darkness and invites you to step out of that darkness, step out of that slavery, step out of that post-traumatic stress that we all live in and be free. Your gospel story is the only way that anyone can move from darkness to light and from pain to hope by way of our Savior, the, one who, the only one who's conquered death, our greatest enemy. Noah's cry when he stepped out of the ark was the same as David's cry when he, he woke up one more morning alive and uncaptured. And it's the cry of every Christian believer. Listen to these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Is this your cry? Do you know the God who created you? The God who is light. The God who is color. The God who sustains your every breath. Who protects you and causes you to flourish. And whose word to you in the broken body of his son Jesus is mercy. Do you know this God? He is your way out. He is your way forward. He is your only way. So trust him and follow him and come out of the tomb today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have, for those of us in Christ, you have called us out of the tomb of sin and pain and trauma, and you've called us into the kingdom of your son, the kingdom of light. God, help us now to walk in the light as we look back to the sacrifice that made it possible, what you did to make us flourish, what you did that we might be close to you. Teach our hearts again as we remember the gospel and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.